the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Now, I know all week we've been promoting the conversation I expected to have today with Mr. Horowitz, but as uh, James and I have now coined the term since this has happened twice, we have been Horowitzed. Uh, he canceled earlier today, so we're not going to have the conversation you may have tuned in today to hear, and I'm sorry to uh, make that announcement. We will share a conversation I had with Kate Warman. She's the author of Thank You for Rejecting Me, Transforming Pain into Purpose, and Learn to Fight for Yourself. That's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. So again, I apologize. We've all been Horowitzed. Taking a look at the news, which is what we'll do in this uh, first part of the program, around 1,500 gift cards are going to be given out on a first-come, first-serve basis to people who get their first dose of the COVID vaccine. Really? We're talking about $100 gift cards. Uh, as uh, Oregon continues its push to reach the governor's goal, she had predicted around the 26th of this month, that 70% vaccination goal, the Oregon Health Authority and mass vaccination sites in the Portland metro area announced they're going to offer free $100 gift cards to Fred Meyer and Safeway stores for people who receive their first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. So bribery is in full swing. Around 1,500 gift cards will be given out on a first-come, first-served basis starting on Friday the 11th at the the, uh, drive-through vaccination sites at Portland International Airport and Hillsborough Stadium and on Saturday, June the 12th at the Oregon Convention Center here in Portland. Uh, You can walk in or make an appointment. So you can pick if you are interested in the uh, the gift card or just uh, interested in the vaccine. Um, those who receive their second vaccination dose will not be eligible for the gift card. They assume you're already motivated. Well, the Portland area mass vaccination sites will be open on June the 19th. Again, the planned hours, Saturday, June um, 12th, 9 a.m. to 4, Wednesday, June 16th, noon to 7, Saturday, June the 19th, 9 to noon. So if you were planning to get the vaccination, there you go. If not, Well, we'll just move on. Well, the national headlines uh, point to Portland as reeling from deadly gang violence with calls to defund the police, saying that Portland uh, residents are scared. Now, you can decide for yourself if that's how it feels here. But the homicide record in Oregon's largest city could be broken this year. Now, Portland is on pace to surpass its all-time record for homicide this year. Its uh, police department is grappling with a surge in gang-related shootings with a staffing shortage and continued calls for defunding. Well, as of today, there have been 37 homicides in Oregon, largest city, which, of course, is Portland, so far this year, more than six times the number recorded in the same period last year, according to the Associated Press. The city's current annual record for homicides is 70. That was set in 1987. Now, you might think 37 is such a low number when you look at some of the larger cities, but uh, one seems like a large number to me. If you live in a community and someone has lost their life to, uh, to gun or gang violence, people are scared, they're angry, they're fed up. That's a quote from Portland Police Sergeant Ken Dulio uh, speaking to um, the Associated Press. When Portland had a rampant gang problem, 
About 30 years ago, detectives were stunned if they found more than a few dozen bullet casings after a shooting. Now police are recording multiple shootings a week with 50 to 70 shots fired, and in one case, more than 150 as gang attacks and retaliatory shootings again spiral into a vicious cycle. This touches all of us, Portland's uh, Pastor Matt Hennessy says. He's a longtime anti-gun violence activist uh, who's 33-year-old stepson was shot and killed in a parking lot in May. He was speaking to the Associated Press. I have lived here for 32 years, and I have always seen this city as a safe place. This is not the Portland that we know. Well, sadly, it is the Portland that we know and live in. The numbers are just increased as they were once before. Well, police estimate half of Portland's 470 shootings this year, which have uh, injured more than 140 people, are gang-related. Portland Mayor Wheeler, he warned last month that the perpetrators are uh, being told by gangs, or I should say told by gangs, to shoot someone within 30 days or be shot, and that people are traveling from other states to engage in violence in the City of Roses. Portland's pervasive gang violence in the 1990s, when it was estimated that there were 2,500 people and up to 600 gangs uh, in this area, left what they're calling a crimson stain on recent city history. But now, after the coronavirus pandemic shutdown, Black Lives Matter protests demanding change following the murder of George Floyd, and a diminishing police presence, community leaders say the problem has returned. And while the number of shootings is uh, comparable to the 90s. Police and residents say the boldness of the shooters and the number of shots fired surpass what they have been and what we've seen before. Gangs are uh, also no longer waiting for the typical tit-for-tat cycle in the targeting of a rival, but instead immediately shooting again at uh, uh, places such as vigils, injuring up to seven people at a single event. Again, according to the Associated Press, you have multiple shooters. Um, that's um, a kind of a new phenomenon, multiple guns and lots of shots being fired. Again, Officer Dulio uh, says he added more gunshots, increases the odds of bystanders being hit, including most recently a newspaper carrier, Uber driver and city bus driver. Again, the nation looking once again at Portland, not favorably as the city of roses that people want to uh, to come to because we're keeping Portland weird, but a place to avoid now ang- adding gun violence to the list of reasons to stay away. Sort of a sad uh, scenario. Well, President Biden and British Prime Minister Boris Johnson on Thursday signed a revitalized Atlantic Charter, reaffirming their commitment to work together to counter the effort of those who would seek to undermine democratic alliances and institutions. Now, the two signed the new charter, modeled after the 1941 agreement, after a bilateral meeting, which senior Biden administration officials said was focused on shared values and global challenges, including counterterrorism, Afghanistan, evolving challenges in the Indo-Pacific, Middle East, and Russia. Well, the last Atlantic charter was signed 80 years ago. Officials said nothing that the new charter would make clear the U.S. and the U.K.'s common values values and aspirations. Well, senior Biden administration officials said the charter is a profound statement of purpose and of democracy at a moment when democracies are very much in competition in showing the world who can deliver for people. Well, I hope Mr. Biden took that seriously, recognizing that our constitutional republic has to be fought for to be maintained. Uh, this is a statement by leaders that believe that the, de- the democratic motto is best for government 
in the world, an official said. Well, the charter first commits to defending the principles, values, and institutions of democracy and open societies, which drive our own national strength and our alliances, while ensuring the democracies, starting with the U.S. and U.K., can deliver on solving the critical challenges of our time. We will champion transparency, uphold the rule of law, and support civil society and independent media, the charter states. We will also confront injustice and inequality and defend the inherent dignity and human rights of all individuals. The Charter also commits to strengthening the institutions, laws, and norms that sustain international cooperation to adopt them to meet the new standards, the new challenges of the 21st century, and guard against those that would undermine them. We will work through the rules-based international order to tackle global challenges together, embrace the promise and manage the apparel of emerging technologies, promote economic advancement and the dignity of work, and enable open and fair trade between nations, the Charter states. Well, the Charter also maintains that the U.S. and U.K. stand united behind the principles of sovereignty, territorial, uh, territorial integrity, and the peaceful resolve of disputes, while making clear that the nation's supposed interference through disinformation or other malign influence, including in elections, and reaffirmed their commitment to debt transparency, sustainability, and source governance of debt relief. So too, we will defend key principles such as freedom of navigation and overflight and other internationally lawful uses of the seas, the charter states. Now, it's interesting to me because it seems to me the Biden administration is already opposed to several of the principles that are enunciated in that agreement. And I would hope that uh, upon returning to the United States, the president might reconsider positions now firmly held by the far left and embraced by the Biden administration primarily through, um, well, laziness. Well, President Biden is uh, warning that uh, climate change is the greatest threat to U.S. security. And this is not a joke. We'll tell you more about it when we return, but do need to take a quick break here in a moment. Just a reminder, later in the program, we'll hear from Kate Warman. Thank you for rejecting me. Um, Transform pain into purpose and learn to fight for yourself coming up in the second hour of today's program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you that you can make Father's Day special for your dad. And if you'd like to do that, to make it extra special, you can enter our Father's Day giveaway and you could win $1,000 in cash for your dad. Uh, we've made it easy for you to participate. Just go to kpdq.com, enter the keyword father. And to increase your opportunity to win, you can enter one each day now through the 20th of June. Plus, we're providing you with bonus entries you can earn as well. So enter today at kpdq.com, the keyword father. Well, President Biden is warning climate change is the greatest threat to U.S. security, and this is not a joke. President Biden warned military service members on Wednesday that top Pentagon officials consider climate change to be the greatest threat to America's national security in the coming years. Now, when I went over to the uh, tank in the Pentagon when I was first elected vice president with President Obama, the military sat us down and let us know what the greatest threat facing America were, the greatest physical threats, he said. This is not a joke. You know what the Joint Chiefs of Staff told us the greatest physical threat facing America was? Global warming. I don't want to say that he's misstating what uh, he was told, but if I were in the military, in uniform, being addressed by the president, I would second guess whether or not what I'm doing is actually worth it. Since the threat isn't um, uh, the Taliban or other hostile entities who are opposed to the United States and would like nothing more than to destroy her, 
Uh, but it's climate change. Maybe I should become an environmentalist and start picking up trash along the coastline. But the president went on to say there will be significant population movements, fights over land, millions of people leaving places because they're literally sinking below the sea in Indonesia because of the uh, fights over what is arable land anymore. Now, we've heard this before when we were going to have global cooling. And by now, in fact, uh, our former vice president, Al Gore, told us we would uh, be far much further along in our fight for survival than we are today. But we just keep moving the the, the line. We keep changing the, the parameters of what we are supposed to be paying panicking over, and this just being the latest. Well, the president issued the warning during a speech to Air Force personnel stationed in the United Kingdom. The president will participate in meetings with G7 and NATO leaders this month during his first overseas trip since entering the White House. He made the declaration amid pressure from Republican lawmakers regarding his policy toward Russia in the wake of the ransomware attacks that targeted key U.S. infrastructure, including his administration's decision to waive sanctions on the Russia-backed Nord Stream 2 pipeline. But don't worry, Keystone has been shut down altogether and the major investor has backed away. Well, the president said he would speak to key European allies about a unified approach to combating climate change, which he has identified as a priority for his administration. In other developments, Vice President Harris' staff says climate change and the economy are among the main drivers of immigration after Guatemala's president blamed the U.S. And Biden has reinstated the climate officials dumped by the former president, Donald Trump. Powell says the Fed does not seek to set climate policy for the U.S. and the oil and gas industry trolls the uh, North Face with a new billboard campaign. A Virginia County official backs the school board on critical race theory, calling the opposition racism evolved. A county official in Virginia has expressed support for a local school board as it faces heat from some parents and teachers for promoting critical race theory in the district's schools. In a letter to the school board, a copy of which was obtained by media, Loudoun County Supervisor Julie Bricksman, she slammed the district's low level of racial consciousness and describes resistance to critical race theory curriculum as racism evolved. Being on the right side of history isn't always easy, Brinks, um, Briskman writes, in an apparent attempt to buck up the spirits of board members as they deal with community outrage. Briskman's letter is dated Tuesday, though it was unclear whether the letter was written before or after Tuesday's raucous Loudoun County School Board meeting, which included a fiery speech from Fairfax County teacher Lilt Van Stain, uh, Van Sayen, uh, who uh, urged parents to push back against any lesson plans for their children that they don't agree with. Van Stan accused proponents of, Christ- of um, critical race theory of attempting to turn local school districts into indoctrination camps with white students taught to hate yourself because of your skin color. But it doesn't, of course, end there. An army of moms is leading the charge against critical race theory in Virginia schools. And one teacher says colleagues are afraid to oppose critical race theory even though they are opposed to it. You don't say that out loud. Uh, A Virginia school board meeting exploded as members there faced backlash for the suspension of Tanner Cross, whose case we have been following for the last several days. Well, U.S. consumer prices increased in May at the fastest annual rate in nearly 13 years as the economic comeback from COVID-19 lockdowns continues to build momentum. The Labor Department said Thursday that the consumer price index in May rose 5% year over year, hotter than the 4.7% increase that was anticipated. The reading was above last month's 4.2% as well. Prices jump 0.6% month over month, quicker than the 0.4% increase that was expected by analysts surveyed by Refintiv. The annual data 
uh, has a base effects uh, skewed due to the decline in the prices that occurred at the start of the pandemic. Well, used car and truck prices surged 7.3 percent. Uh, accounting for about one-third of the index gain. Food prices, meanwhile, rose 0.4%, matching April's increase. Energy prices were unchanged from April as a decline in gasoline prices was offset by an increase in natural gas and electricity costs. Core CPI, which excludes food and energy in May, rose 3.8% annually, the most since June of 1992. Core prices increased 0.7% month-over-month, outpacing the 0.4% increase that was expected, and the index rose 0.9% in April. Well, the vaccine marathon is hitting roadblocks. Plummeting vaccine rates are putting President Biden's goal of getting at least one shot into the arms of 70% of Americans by the 4th of July at risk. With less than a month to go, it's not clear that the country will meet the deadline, according to uh, Linda Hugh. At the current seven-day average pace of vaccination rates, the U.S. could be about 10 million short of the president's $160 million uh, million, rather, benchmark. Uh, the latest tally stands at 137.1%, with 63.8% of adult Americans having received at least one shot. The nationwide slowdown has uh, legions of healthcare workers and volunteers doing whatever it takes to get more people vaccinated, whether it's showing up at stores, drive-thrus, train stations, or parks. One pop-up vaccine site at Grand Central Terminal is offering the one-shot Johnson & Johnson vaccine to reach commuters going into Manhattan. There's just a group out there that either they work late or they're in the location where they don't have uh, pharmacies or other large vaccination centers near them. Metropolitan Transportation Authority Chief and Safety and Security Patrick Warren uh, said, speaking to media, this gives them the opportunity as they come into work to get the shot. Warren said that it's the uh, next tier of people that officials are focusing on in order to reach the herd immunity effect. Well, it's part of the effort to make these shots more available in some unique places. Well, a Nevada man was charged Wednesday with stealing hundreds of blank COVID-19 vaccine cards from a Southern California vaccination center. Boy, I never saw that coming. People using a, a fraudulent card to appear to have received the vaccine but not having actually had it. Mohammed Ralph Ahmed, a Las Vegas um, of Las Vegas, allegedly took more than 500 cards from the center at the Panoma Fair, uh, Fairplex in April. The former Los Angeles uh, city contract worker was charged with one felony count of grand theft, and he's scheduled to be arraigned in the Department of uh, P- uh, Pomona, a branch of the Los Angeles County Superior Court. In August, it wasn't immediately known if he, the 45-year-old, has an attorney. In a statement posted on Facebook, the Laverne Police Department wrote Tuesday that detectives were tipped off about possible theft and embezzlement of blank vaccine cards by an employee of the site on April 27th. After responding to the scene, officers determined that the suspect had stolen blank cards a total of 528 of them, and put them in his car and hotel room. Laverne Police uh, conducted a criminal investigation with the assistance and cooperation of the Los Los Angeles uh, County Fire Department and the uh, Department of Public Health. The department said Mohammed Ralph Ahmed, 45 years of age, from Las Vegas, Vegas, Nevada, was arrested. He was a non-clinical contracted employee who was hired to support the vaccination site. So he was there on site legitimately, but misused his position. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. This month, you can enter to win Ron Archer's book, The Power of One Man, where Ron Archer examines biblical figures who changed the world in which they lived, then applies those lessons to the challenges men face today. Most of the social problems in our culture stem from an epidemic of fatherlessness, he writes. But as Ron's own life demonstrates, God has a plan to redeem and restore those areas by redeeming and restoring men themselves, one individual at a time. You can enter to win a signed copy of The Power of One Man online at kpdq.com. Hope you'll check that out. More than 180,000 people visited the U.S. border with Mexico in May. That's according to border czar Kamala Harris. She wasn't one of them, however. President-in-waiting, Harris became Joe Biden's border czar in March. Since then, the border crisis has only gotten worse, as we've all waited for uh, Harris to actually visit the border. She's laughed off the idea on more than one occasion, including this week, just before her trip to Guatemala and Mexico. It's certainly not a laughing matter, although she tried to laugh it off. A record high 180,034 people were apprehended by federal law enforcement last month trying to cross the border. And that's after April and March saw 178,622 and 172,331, respectively. Well, since the Department of Homeland Security was established in 2002, no single month has seen the border traffic May did. Last month's numbers represents an eye-popping 674% increase year over year and are far higher than the 30 to 50,000 monthly average over the last decade. Well, too bad these statistics weren't released during Harris's trip. I should say Vice President Harris's trip. Not all of these migrants are being turned away either. More than 38,000 children who migrated to the United States from countries south of Mexico and came across the southern border without a parent uh, have been released throughout the country since President Joe Biden took office. Um, the Washington Examiner reports the figure represents the highest number of migrant children to be discharged from government custody at any point in U.S. history. Now, those children often become the connections that bring adults in later. Well, it's not that uh, Vice President Harris uh, showing up at the border would suddenly fix anything, but it would convey at least a modicum of seriousness about the situation instead of laughing, shrugging, yammering about root causes of migration, you know, global warming, and essentially asking what crisis. As Mark Alexander put it, so border czar Kamala Harris claims the root causes of the southern border surge includes uh, extreme weather conditions and the lack of climate adaptation, as well as violence against women, indigenous people, LGBTQ people, and Afro-descendants. Actually, the root cause is Biden-Harris open border invitation. Well, sure, she went to the Central American countries and said the potential migrants do not come, said to them, do not come. But the clear, unmistakable message of Joe Biden's administration is that Donald Trump's efforts to, at border security were cruel and racist. And the new administration, the new sheriff in town, isn't going to behave that way. What potential migrants are actually hearing is if you come, you can stay. Now, don't take our word for it. Take Joe Biden's. In 2019, he said, I would, in fact, make sure that there is that we immediately surge to the border. All those people seeking asylum, they deserve to be heard. Uh, that's who we are. We are a nation that says if you want to flee and you are fleeing oppression, you should come. The coyotes making $200,000 to smuggle migrants certainly got that message. And uh, the numbers 
prove it. Well, the truth is the border crisis could be fixed overnight, says political analyst John Daniel Davidson. All the Biden administration has to do is stop letting people into the country, turn them back to the border and tell them that they'll have to wait in Mexico for the outcome of their asylum hearing. It won't um, take long for word to get back to the sending communities that the trip isn't worth it. In other words, go back to Donald Trump's border policies. But the fact that it was a Trump innovation means that that will never be considered by the current administration. Well, a new government report has chipped away at the long-held narrative that then-President Donald Trump ordered federal police to clear protesters from Lafayette Park last summer so that he could walk to a D.C. church for a photo op with the Bible. Well, the report, released on Wednesday by the Interior Department's Inspector General, said U.S. Park Police did not clear the park and nearby area of protesters on the 1st of June last year for Trump. Instead, the Park Police learned that Trump instead had... um, the Trump's interest in the site several hours after they had already started plans to clear the area to put up new fencing. So his um, interest in uh, taking his little walk uh, followed the decision that was already in place. Well, the evidence we obtained uh, did not support a finding that the USPP cleared the park to allow the president to survey the damage and walk to St. John's Church. The park police learned of Trump's plans hours after the contractor had arrived to begin the installation. The watchdog report also concluded that park police officers acted within their authority to begin clearing Lafayette Square before the city's then 7 p.m. curfew. Thank you to the Department of the Interior Inspector General for completely and totally totally exonerating me in the clearing of Lafayette Park, Trump said in a statement. As we have said all along, and it was backed up in today's highly detailed and professionally written report, our fine park police made the decision to clear the park to allow a contractor to safely install um, anti-scale fencing to protect from Antifa rioters, radical BLM protesters, and other violent demonstrators, he went on to add. Well, Trump was widely uh, condemned for the June 1st incident, during which law enforcement officers used chemical irritants to disperse protesters that had gathered at Lafayette Park, located outside the White House. The crowd of more than a 1,000 demonstrators had been protesting the murder of George Floyd, um, who was killed by a police officer who has now been charged and is um, awaiting sentencing. Fallout over the FDA's recent decision to grant Biogen Alzheimer's drug, accelerated approval, has seen two advisory panel members resign. The agency's decision, which was met with mixed reviews and marked the first approval of an Alzheimer's drug in nearly two decades, came after a peripheral and central nervous system drugs advisory committee said in November that it was not reasonable to consider clinical benefit of the drug based on one successful study. One of the members who resigned, Dr. David Nopeman, Uh, is a Mayo Clinic neurologist who, according to Reuters, had been uh, recused from the November meeting because he was an uh, investigator of Biogen's clinical trials. I was very disappointed at how the advisory committee input was treated by the FDA, Nopeman said, uh, to the uh, speaking to the outlet, I don't wish to be uh, put in a position like this again. The other member was Dr. Joel uh, Perlmuter, a neurologist of Washington University in St. Louis, who told um, a Stat that he uh, that his resignation on Monday was due to this ruling by the FDA without further discussion with uh, our advisory committee. In a statement regarding Biogen's approval, Dr. Patricia. Um, 
Cavazzoni, FDA Center for Drug Evaluation and Research Director, said that when the panel had said there was no, not enough data to consider benefit of the drug, it had not discussed the option of accelerated approval in November. Accelerated approval allows for drugs targeted at serious conditions that fill an unmet medical need to be approved based on a surrogate endpoint which has uh, marker thought to, to predict clinical benefit, but is not itself a measure of clinical benefit. So very controversial, and we'll see how widely it's used um, and how those, uh, those tests uh, actually present in patients. Well, residents of a ritzy Atlanta suburb are pushing for a separate police force as crime rages in a war zone, as they're referring to it. A seemingly unprovoked weekend violence spree through Atlanta's uh, Buckhead neighborhood has highlighted what area police see as a needed a need rather for more security and public safety protocols as the recent crime jump has made some residents too scared to even pump gas at some places. Um, On Thursday, the Buckhead City Committee, formerly the Buckhead Exploratory Committee, will be demanding emergency hearings as part of its ongoing effort to become a separate entity from the city of Atlanta. Bill White, the group's CEO and chairman, says, given everything that's uh, been going on here, it's getting worse and worse and worse. He told um, local uh, media on Wednesday. So what we're doing because of the murderers uh, going through the roof and the attempted murders and the lack of leadership and nothing changing, the insanity continues, is we're demanding emergency hearings on our cityhood bills. Uh, White continued, I say we have three major issues and that's all we have, crime, crime, and crime. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Take a quick break and we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you, coming up in the next hour, we're going to share a conversation I had with Kate Warman. Thank you for rejecting me. I know that title might be a little sketchy, but she has a lot of good things to say in her book and, of course, in the um, in the conversation. Also want to remind you that the Deeper Faith Alaska Cruise 2021 is on. One of the joys of a Christian cruise is the people you meet along the way. On the upcoming Deeper Faith Alaska Cruise with Alistair Begg, Laura Story, and Michael O'Brien, you're going to be surrounded by the fellowship of like-minded travelers, along with Bible teaching and great worship. This once-in-a-lifetime travel experience is hosted by Salem Media Group and our partners, Inspiration Cruises and Tours. You'll bring home life-changing memories to treasure and stories to share. So join us for this unforgettable Alaska cruise this summer and register today at kpdq.com. Sounds like a lot of fun. I wish I was going on that particular cruise. Well, a San Francisco market owner uh, lost an eye in a stabbing attack. His daughter blames the spike in violence. And the father of a Michigan boy, six, allegedly shot by a neighbor, blasts the low bond for the suspect. And a Miami man chased a suspect on a scooter after his $200,000 Lamborghini was allegedly stolen by a teenager. Well, Ilhan Omar is being slammed by fellow House Democrats for her outrageous and clearly false statements about the U.S. and Israel. A Medical Journal article claims that whiteness is a parasitic-like condition with no cure, which is sort of a summation of critical race theory. The county, uh, rather the country music uh, awards 2021 saw Carrie Underwood and John Legend take home top awards. President Biden's vaccine marathon has hit roadblocks with 
the 4th of July goal now in doubt, China and the U.S. commence chiefs, or I should say commerce chiefs, plan to cooperate on handling differences, Beijing says. And House Republicans have requested emails between Facebook's Zuckerberg and Dr. Fauci. The email um, scouring continues. The White House Budget Office has approved Biden's plan to retract insulin and EpiPen discounts. And UPS, they're exploring same-day delivery. Well, some law professors skip teaching about the Dred Scott decision to avoid offending students. So apparently ignorance is better than offense. Matthew Stylin, a law professor at the University of Buffalo, launched the Twitter thread and advocated for editing the case down to a minimalistic page or so to emit text that is so gratuitously insulting and demeaning. He wondered whether assigning that material is asking students to relive the humiliation of Taney's language as evidence of his doctrine of white supremacy. Carol Platt uh, Lebu says, please tell me this is satire. Anyone traumatized by reading an historic legal case is unfit to practice law, particularly, I would add, when that case has been repudiated. The West Coast is struggling to get kids back to school from California to Washington, and of course, Oregon in the middle. The left coast is behind uh, nearly the entire rest of the United States. Guy Benson says, and the reason is unions and Democrats, not science, pure and simple. Um, uh, the Allah pump, uh, pundit says a study conducted last November and December before the vaccines were widely available found no meaningful difference in infection rates between schools that required kids to mask and schools that didn't. There was a difference between schools that required teachers and staff to mask versus those that didn't. There were fewer infections where masks were mandatory for adults, but that issue should be moot now that vaccines are plentiful. If a teacher's been immunized, they don't need a mask. If they haven't, fine, make them mask up. A kid should shouldn't need masks regardless. Republican Mayor Williams, a candidate for governor of California, says Governor Gavin Newsom is politicizing COVID for power and control. Biden's Office of Management and Budget Director is refusing to say the budget won't fund the Wuhan Institute of Virology. After dodging questions by Congressman Jason Smith about past funding, she was asked if they can commit to no funds coming from the current budget. Her answer Congressman, I started my career at NIH. I would never, you know, make that commitment as someone who believes we need to be led by science. And we certainly need to wait for uh, this review before we jump to conclusions, end quote. Well, just 12 House Democrats signed a statement condemning Representative Omar for comparing Israel and the United States to terror groups. How deeply troubled is a party that can only muster a response from 5% of their members? Uh, Some media outlets ask. From the statement, ignoring the differences between democracies governed by the rule of law and contemptible organizations that engage in terrorism at best discredits one's intended argument and at worst reflects deep-seated prejudice, end quote. Byron York says the Biden administration is not being honest about the border being closed. Uh, He says that while Harris and Mayorkas tell Central Americans not to come, the border is closed. The U.S. government is working 24-7 to accommodate, to care for, to house, and to resettle the tens of thousands of migrants who are crossing illegal despite illegally rather despite the warnings the government is not only making it easier to cross into the united states it is making it easier than ever to stay 
Well, even the left media is critical of the California governor for keeping emergency powers alive. From the Los Angeles Times, he is holding on to the broad emergency powers that allow him to unilaterally suspend and alter laws, curtail people's private movements, and award no-bid contracts and authority Newsom has used at times to direct state dollars to his campaign donors. Indeed, the crisis that gripped the state just a few months ago is gone. James Freeman says this, will Mr. Newsom use his powers to liberate citizens from senseless bureaucracy? Golden staters may need to go to a court for such relief. Uh, Judges should also seize the next opportunity to clarify that the governor's emergency authority cannot last forever. You can read more on that in the Wall Street Journal. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says Democrats are burning precious time negotiating with Republicans. The uh, representative appears to be arguing Uh, the need to push through all they can while they have the power. The Congressional Black Caucus has denied entry to a black Republican, apparently not black enough, clearly due to his politics, but they won't say and the media won't press them because, well, that doesn't fit the narrative. A Bucknell University professor says woke colleges are destroying men. From Professor Alexander Riley, young men in institutions like mine are mercilessly stereotyped. They're compelled to unquestionably acquiesce to fundamentally anti-male social justice doctrines that are in the process of becoming the, well, he uses a French term, which I do not speak, um, but anyway, the norm in such institutions. They are told throughout their four years at college that a male who unapologetically embraces his nature commits an eternal offense Unless he agrees to fundamentally change himself to suit the desires of his moral betters, he is to be despised by the righteous and become a legitimate target for repression. So let me see if I can get this right. A male who behaves as a male uh, is to be repudiated. A Caucasian who happens to be Caucasian is supposed to repudiate um, his uh, makeup. Uh, If you are black but not black enough, for example, conservative and Republican, you should repudiate your worldview. I'm I'm trying to follow the thread here. Also, Rod Dreher says this professor is doing a public service. What a rotten deal for white heterosexual males at schools like this. And, of course, that list includes lots of other groups as well. Well, a military commander is under investigation for telling troops white people are part of the problem. Now, I just want to, for those of you who don't listen to the program regularly, I happen to be African-American, and I am frustrated, angry, and insulted by much of what, uh, what's going on uh, today. Anyway, from the story, it is, uh, if it's true, he said that if you're a white male, you're part of the problem. Uh, then he's creating division within his formation, and it's the exact opposite of what the Army has been trying to do with inclusion efforts. An active-duty Army officer told Human Events, Inclusion is for everyone, and it is not discriminatory with regard to race, gender, sexual preference, or any other characteristic, or one's uh, given um, ra- uh, uh, given sex. It appears he has lost trust from many of his subordinates on day one. Mm. Well, President Biden plans to buy 500 million COVID vaccines for the world on the U.S. taxpayer dime. Dr. Fauci is scolding critics, saying attacks on him are attacks on science. He is apparently infallible. A new report reveals Lafayette Park was not cleared for a Trump photo op. And Ashley Babbitt's parents are suing for the identity of the shooting cop responsible for her death. In national security, a new Chinese stealth fighter has been spotted, and around the nation, consumer price surge uh, has broken a 13-year record as the threat of inflation looms. A truck driver shortage is raising food prices, and the Keystone XL oil pipeline project has been abandoned by the developer. Governor Cuomo is under investigation for retaliation against 
his accusers. On this day in history, 1935, Alcoholics Anonymous is founded, founded rather, in Akron, Ohio, by Dr. Robert Hallbrook Smith and William Griffith Wilson. 1967, six days uh, of war in the Mideast involving Israel, Syria, Egypt, Jordan, and Iraq end as Israel and Syria accept a United Nations uh, mediated ceasefire. On this day in history, 1971, President Richard Nixon lifts a two decades old trade embargo on China. And finally, on this day in history, 1977, James Earl Ray, the convicted assassin of Martin Luther King Jr., escapes from Brushy Mountain State Prison in Tennessee with six others. He would be recaptured rather on the 13th. Of June. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. News and traffic up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the second hour. Coming up later in this hour, in fact, our next couple of segments, I'll share a conversation I had with Kate Warman. She is the author of Thank You for Rejecting Me, Transform Pain into Purpose, and Learn to Fight for Yourself. You might wonder about the title, but she does a great job of putting into perspective things that seem devastating at the time but can actually be useful moving forward. So there you have it. Let's see. Unlimited Grace is um, a program we're welcoming on KPDQ AM and FM, an audio broadcast ministry from pastor and author Brian Chappelle. Uh, The show is called Unlimited Grace, and it's dedicated to spreading the gospel of God's grace to all people. We desire for believers everywhere to serve God through faith and his grace that frees from sin and fuels the joy of a transformed life. You can catch Unlimited Grace weekdays, 6 o'clock p.m., and 11 o'clock p.m. on 93.9 KPDQ-FM and 7.30 a.m. and 3.30 p.m. on our sister station, True Talk 800. Well, last Sunday marked the 77th anniversary of D-Day, the invasion of Normandy. On that day, Operation Overlord, it started. It launched the Allied invasion of Europe that would spell the beginning of the end of the Nazi regime. At least 4,400 Allied troops died in the Normandy landings, and another 10,000 were wounded. It is sobering to consider what happened on that day. Ben Shapiro, writing on the occasion, says this. As the invasion started, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt took to the radio airwaves to ask Americans to join him in prayer. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation this day, have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. Let our hearts be stout to wait out the long travail, to bear sorrows that may come to impact our courage uh, onto our sons, whosoever they may be. Well, nearly eight decades later, President Biden had nothing to say or tweet about the D-Day anniversary, breaking with bipartisan precedent. He remained silent on that topic. The next day, however, Biden did tweet something noteworthy about bravery to transgender Americans across the country, especially the young people who are so brave. I want you to know your president has your back, end quote. Well, bravery, circa 1944, young men charging from the choppy seas of the English Channel onto the corpse-strewn beaches of Normandy, a hellfire raining down upon them to liberate a continent. Bravery, circa 2020 young, met young men identifying as women and vice versa. Our definitions of bravery have shifted rather dramatically. Our old definition of courage used to comport with the Aristotelian notion of virtue, the virtue of courage, uh, andria uh, or manliness in Greek, lay in, uh, in recognition of serious risk in pursuit of an historic telos, a final end. 
The courageous man withstands the fears of those things which it is necessary to fear and withstand, and on account of the right reason, Aristotle explained way back when, a courage is a calculated and calm risk-taking for the sake of the noble and the good. But not anymore. Now courage lies in authenticity. Authenticity has not been until recently conflated with courage. In fact, authenticity very often cut directly against the virtue of courage. After all, wallowing in the uh, solipsistic generally involves ignoring the demands of a higher noble goal. But now our higher virtue isn't the upholding and defending some standard for civilization at risk to itself or to ourselves. Higher virtue lies in finding our personal truths and then demanding applause from the rest of the world. Heroism lies in forcing the world to bow before our subjective ideas of truth and decency. Or perhaps there's another possibility. Perhaps the new definition of bravery does serve some higher goal, the goal of tearing down the old definition of the good. True courage lies in personally rejecting old systems of thought and objective truth and in joining with others to demand that all systems of power be brought low. In this fight, the personal is political. Subjectivism isn't the enemy of courage, but a new form of courage, since the final good is to, uh, to be sought is the destruction of truth itself. It remains to be seen whether a civilization obsessed with tearing down its most powerful institutions can long remain civilized or whether civilization that discards old-fashioned courage in favor of the newfangled bravery of authenticity can long hold. The early evidence is uncompromising and it's unpromising. When called upon to face true enemies of freedom, civilization requires men willing to charge beaches on behalf of higher truths, not men focused on finding their inner truths, many of which bear no resemblance to reality. To use the same terminology to describe both phenomena is the betrayal of true courage. Again, Sunday would have marked the 77th anniversary of D-Day. Well, Americans are not stupid, Naomi Wolf points out. Uh, data is the uh, new way to control everybody, and this unholy marriage of data and this health focus, this vaccine focus, is an incredibly democratically brilliant way to control everyone. That's the author of uh, former Al Gore presidential campaign advisor, Naomi Wolf. Well, in late March, New York became the first state to issue a vaccine passport known as the Excelsior Pass. It's an app that will allow New Yorkers to prove their vaccination status or recent history of a naked COVID-19 test in order to gain entry to events and businesses. Governors in Illinois and Hawaii are expressing interest in doing the same. Well, by contrast, it's a duplicitous Biden administration is getting the private sector to do its data aggregating dirty work for it. As it um, was also revealed in March that the White House is working with companies in that regard. The government is not viewing its role as a, a place to create a passport nor a place to hold the data of citizens, stated Andy Slavitt. He's a senior advisor to the White House COVID-19 response team. We view this as something that the private sector is doing and will do what's important to us. Yet Slavitt also made it clear that the government would be putting its uh, proverbial thumb on the scale. We think we can essentially put forward guidelines and guidance, Slavitt said. And given the federal government's source and role in society from everything to transportation security uh, and uh, Veterans Administration to the Department of Health and Human Services, we have a major impact on what will be what will actually get done. So we're putting forward our principles very clearly. 
principles, a racially obsessed Democrat party and its virtue signaling private sector allies, the very same entities grown quite comfortable accusing America of systematic racism, are poised to endure an epic beatdown based on such coercive principles, one wholly of their own making. Well, for weeks, the Biden administration's media allies sought to frame white conservatives as the most vaccine um, hesitant cohort in America. And as always, they couldn't uh, conceal their bicoastal elitism when doing so. The White House is working to reach vaccine hesitant white conservatives the best way they know how between episodes of Deadliest Catch, NASCAR uh, and country music TV programming. Teen Vogue reported. That's an actual quote from the administration. Press Secretary Jen Psaki signaled the administration's support of that effort. We're looking for a range of creative ways to get directly connected to white conservative communities. We won't always be the best uh, messengers, but we'll still try to meet people where they are, but also empower local organizations. Well, as recently as Monday, the UK's Daily Mail framed a huge fail in U.S. vaccination rates in terms of geography, insisting the slowdown is driven by the South and Midwest. Again, the implication is that the bitter clinger crowd has gummed up the works for their far more enlightened counterparts on the coasts and in the north uh, northeast. Further categorizing the resistance, a Gallup poll released Monday revealed that of the one in five Americans who do not want to get the COVID-19 shot, 78 percent of them are likely to change their minds. Seventy eight percent. Well, the problem with the particular framing of the agenda, uh, it's a calculated lie obscuring a high inconvenient truth. The truth, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, as of May the 24th, vaccination rates broken down by race across uh, 40 states uh, are as followed. 54% of Asians have received the jab, followed by 43% of whites, 32% of Hispanics, and 29% of blacks. Thus, as it turns out, the two biggest groups of minorities, black Americans in particular, are the most vaccine-hesitant people in the nation. And as the Biden administration and its allies in the private sector will soon discover, those who live by the race card die by it also, as COVID passports become de facto segregation by race in all its Jim Crow permutations brought to America by the same Democrat party that heartily endorsed it the first time around. Yet it gets even worse. Beginning with the Supreme Court's 1971 landmark decision, Griggs versus Duke Power Company, the concept known as disparate impact was established as part of the nation's anti-discrimination efforts. Disparate impact is defined as an unnecessary discriminatory effect on a protected class caused by a practice or policy as an employment or housing that appears to be non-discriminatory. In other words, Vaccine passports may not uh, only be about bad racial appearances for the Biden administration and the private companies, organizations and education institutes, etc., determined to segregate Americans according to their vaccine status. They may be illegal as well when disproportionate numbers of minorities cannot access jobs, education, etc., relative to their white and Asian counterparts, black and Hispanic Americans who have already endured higher unemployment rates during the pandemic, and a black-white achievement gap in education that's uh, remained uh, static for more than 50 years. Perhaps nothing says discriminatory effect better than exacerbating those realities. So the passport, which uh, is favorable uh, and a requirement, somehow is fine, but showing your identification to vote is something that we simply cannot tolerate. Coming up next, we'll talk with Kate Warman. Thank you for rejecting me. Transform pain into purpose and learn to fight for yourself. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest writes in her introduction about a relationship she has had. She writes, I have a, a confession to make um, of my life. I've been in a, rela- a complicated relationship. She's referring to rejection and her book, Thank You for Rejecting Me, Transform Pain into Purpose and Learn to Fight for Yourself is a book that speaks to all of us who at one time or another have been marked by re- rejection. Well, the sting of rejection is one of those bitter parts of life that we can't fully escape. Whether it happened in grade school or last week, it can leave deep scars that affect our relationships, our self-worth and our identities for years to come. But instead of letting it weigh us down, what we uh, used, it can be used rather as a catapult uh, to profound healing, growth, and a deeper sense of love of self. Now, that may seem impossible because you haven't yet read the book. We're going to talk with Kate um, Warman, who is an um, inspirational speaker, a popular relationship coach, and the host of the Heart of Dating podcast. She helps thousands of men and women on their journey um, on her podcast, social media platform, one-on-one relationship coaching, and online courses. And we're delighted to have you with us today to talk about Thank You for Rejecting Me. And I have to admit, when I first saw the title of the book, I was intrigued. Who on earth would make that kind of a statement? I now understand why you make it and the value of gleaning from that experience experience what has made you to be the woman that you are today. Welcome. Oh, thanks, Regine. I'm so excited to be here and, and totally agree. Usually it's not the first thing you say in the wake of rejection, but you'll see through the book that I bring a positive spin to rejection, but without discounting the weight and the pain mm-hmm. that rejection can also feel in those moments. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. You don't um, suggest that rejection is less than it is and that its impact is less than it is. But in in um, acknowledging what it is and the impact, uh, the devastating impact it can have, you also point out that it can be a tool that can help develop in other areas. Uh, tell us about the book and how you've been able to form this stance toward rejection, because most of us don't want to admit that, first of all, we've been rejected. And secondly, that it's had much of an impact. Yeah. So, you know, throughout my history and my story, so much of it has to do with various different forms of rejection and being a dating coach, obviously um, a very, you know, explicit kind of rejection in the dating world would be heartbreak. But Mm -hmm. honestly, rejection comes in more forms than just heartbreak. And when I actually analyze my own personal history, I realized that so many of the rejections from my past that even started in childhood that formed lies and beliefs that then got reinforced through middle school, high school, college, through getting jobs, through so many different elements and different rejections I experienced along the way, I realized, wow, a lot of these rejections of the past impacted how I was showing up today in my life. And without properly dealing with them, without properly healing from them and transforming them and kind of just recognizing them and seeing how they were impacting my life today, I would never be able to really walk into the fullness of my identity to really um, become the woman that I feel like God has made me to be. And then simultaneously, not only did I recognize that so many rejections of my past continue to affect me today, but there are also so many different self-rejections, which I'm sure we'll get into, which also impacted the way I saw myself. And sometimes those self-rejections can be some of the worst of all, because there are things that we have absolute control of. There's things there. Those are the things that we tell ourselves, the things we believe about ourselves, um, and we have other ones in control of them, but oftentimes we don't have the tools or we don't feel brave enough to kind mm-hmm. of dive into the waters of the ways in which we're self-rejecting in order to heal. Uh, yeah. So that my own personal story coupled with 
hundreds and thousands of stories that I have heard of different people I've coached and people in my community, I realized, wow, I don't want to just help people get dates, even though I love doing that as a dating coach. It's really so much more than that. We have to look back and deal with our relationship with rejection in order to show up healthy and free and vibrant and confident in our lives today. Yeah, you write about body insecurity, self-hatred, loneliness, bullying, fitting in, abuse, sexual shame, shame rather, betrayal, feeling like a failure, abandonment, heartbreak, not knowing where God is in it all. Um, these are things that we've all experienced, and oftentimes I think we don't feel worthy to address them head on with the expectation that we can uh, be shaped by um, facing them and then moving forward uh, in ways that are productive. You write about the book, I want you to be equipped to move forward with freedom, fierceness, and tender, strong love. That's quite a, an expectation. Walk us through the ways that you've, uh, re- you've been uh, rejected or rejected yourself and how you've reckoned with that. Yeah, so the reality is going back to kind of go through these layers of shame and fears and lies that you believe about yourself or lies that other people have spoken over you. It can be really daunting, and it's not a task that you wake up one morning and you're like, yeah, let me go through all these layers. It's a hard and noble journey, and it requires a lot of bravery, a lot of courage to go through those stinky layers that oftentimes we'd rather just not go through. We'd rather not think about how we were potentially traumatized in our childhood. We'd rather not think of that memory in high school. And in fact, a lot of times what we do is instead of wanting to go through the things we say to ourselves today, well, we should be over that by now. You know, that was so Mm -hmm. long ago, we should be over that. But all we're doing in saying those things to ourselves today is we're increasing the shame upon ourselves. Like we should be over it today implies that, you know, we did something wrong and that we're weak or that we're something less than because we haven't fully dealt with it yet. But the reality is for myself, who's worked through this and through basically every person I've met, there's no shame in having to admit, hey, there are things that have happened to me that I need to revi- revisit. There are ways in which I, I cannot live this way anymore. And I have to go back and heal from these elements in order to be able to move forward. And so for me, I hit a breaking point about eight years ago. I had just come out of a really toxic and abusive relationship. And in that relationship, which was a two and a half year cycle of just gaslighting and abuse in every form that somebody can be abusive. I really lost myself entirely. And at the end of the two and a half years, I would say, I would venture to say that I really hated myself. And I felt like I couldn't talk to anybody about it. I blamed myself entirely for that relationship. I was like, how could I fall into something like this? Like, what's wrong with me? How, why would you do that? And coupled with, you actually deserve those, that treatment, Kate, all of those kinds of thoughts. And at the end of that relationship, I kind of had to take a long, hard look in the mirror and reflect on, what happened in my life to get me to this moment? Um, were there patterns that led me to this mo- to this place that I am today? Mm-hmm. Knowing that I could not go forward with those beliefs about myself because I could barely function. I was crippling. I was de- decomposing behind the scenes, like honestly. And um, so I had to go on a long journey of facing my history and facing the things that had happened in my childhood and high school with different men that I had dated the belief systems I had learned to believe about my body, about my attraction, about the way I showed up, my personality, um, all the things that I was telling myself, I had to really look at those things and start healing. And so I went on a journey of 
going to a therapist and man, I needed that therapist so much. I, I talked to that therapist every single week and I got a new community. I developed community that felt safe. People who knew me, saw me, understood my story. I start, I changed churches at the time to really just refresh in my community since I had my abusive person, the person I was dating had gone to my previous church. Um, I cut out guys from my life because I learned that that was an Achilles heel of mine that I had dated basically nonstop for 10 years. And it had led me to question who is Kate outside of dating? Like, I didn't even know Mm -hmm. what it was like to be single at that time in my early 20s. And so I had to go on this really treacherous journey. It was hard, but so worth it. Um, And it would, I would say, and for anybody listening, it took multiple years and it's not even a journey that's over, you know? And so that uh, turning point in my life, that what I like to call heck no moment was one moment that catapulted me into realizing that I had more power than I ever thought that I did over my life and over my own healing process and that nobody else could force me to get better. Nobody else could help me to love myself so that I don't lose myself in the wake of rejections again. But I was the one that was going to have to do the work and put in the effort. And no matter how many jobs I got or how much I succeeded or how many guys said yes to go out with me, none of that would actually fulfill me if I didn't actually work on the root of all these belief systems and all the past traumas that had affected how I was showing up. So um, that's it, Georgine. I mean, there is not that's it, but that was that's a turning point moment that led me onto this journey yeah. Um, yeah. to then really face a lot of those past rejections. We're talking with Kate Warman. She's the author of Thank You for Rejecting Me, Transform Pain into Purpose, and Learn to Fight for Yourself. The book is published by Baker. We need to take a quick break, but we'll return in a moment to continue our conversation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Kate Warman. She's the author of Thank You for Rejecting Me, Transform Pain into Purpose, and Learn to Fight for Yourself. Now, what role, um, Kate, would you say today's culture, today's superficial culture, plays in the rejection experienced by so many women in particular? Yes, my gosh, Georgine, what a question. Well, in the age that we're in today, which is such a technological age, we have so many influences, not only from TV and the media, but then add in social media. And what I see is one of the biggest elements that cripples us today, especially as women, would be comparison. Mm -hmm. Consistently on social media and different media outlets, what you should look like. And this is the ideal of you know, the perfect body type, or this is what guys are interested in. And this is what you should look like here. Or maybe this is what you should look like there. It's always changing. There's a lot of different messaging. But the problem is, as well, is that when we go on something like social media, which I love, because that's where my whole career is built through technology and through social media and being able to connect with people. But simultaneously, even myself, knowing that I'm a person that's more of a public figure, I've learned that it's impossible for me to share everything, nor is it wise for me to really share everything with everyone on social media. So there may be times people may follow me and think, oh my gosh, she just looks like she's so happy all the time, or she looks like she's having a great time in her life. And man, like I'm over here with no friends, or I'm over here and I just got broken up with. And 
man, it just looks like she has a smile on her face and she was broken up with, but she's still good and thriving. They don't always see. The reality is people don't always see because I need to protect my own personal life over the things and the conversations I'm actually dealing with sometimes behind the scenes. And so when we just take social media and things like that for face value, we don't consider the possibility that there's so many other things behind the scenes, we'll start comparing ourselves and our lives to other people. And what it does is it consistently leads to a scarcity mindset versus an abundance mindset. Mm. And the scarcity mindset basically says, you know, I'm never going to have what they have. Or, you know, there's, there's just this much of one piece, one pie, and everyone else gets all the big slices. And all I'm stuck with is a tiny little sliver or just a handful of crumbs. And that's all I'm ever going to get in life. And what then happens is you start thinking that you start having like a suffering scarcity mindset that the world is out to get you that you're never going to have anything wonderful that you're not actually deserving of love or those things that you really desire. And then what actually happens is you start cultivating that mentality into Mm -hmm. your life. So you get online, you meet a guy and it doesn't go that great. Um, automatically, it's a self fulfilling prophecy. You're like, well, I knew that would happen. I'm not worthy of love anyway or I'm not interesting enough anyway, or I was never going to get what I thought I was going to get. So I guess this makes sense. And then you start giving up on online dating just because of that, because you already have that belief system. So when we compare, it leads to all these negative thoughts about ourselves and really contributes to a, a scarcity mindset, which is completely crippling and eliminates any beautiful potential for our lives. And so I see so many women specifically sitting so stuck in a scarcity mindset, crippled by comparison and really believing that their life is only ever going to lack. And they are missing out on so much of the beauty that already exists in their life, plus the beauty that God wants to bring to their life, that they could only cling to hope. And instead of focusing on all the things they lack, focus on the things they do have. And focus on moving forward to the next element in their life. The beautiful part about how God works, too, is that no love story is the same. Um, And, you know, even you may see a perfect couple that gets married and watch their marriage video. You don't even know the things that went behind the scenes just to get to that wedding day, the stress. Hmm the potential conflict, the the drama with the in-laws, like all you're watching is the beautiful wedding video. The point is that there's so much behind the scenes. There's an iceberg of information below the surface that we'll never know. But if the more we focus on the scarcity and we just focus on what everyone else has and we stop focusing on what we can cultivate right here in front of us, the more we'll actually miss out on opportunities in our lives. And so I see women uh, especially struggling with that. And I would you know, say mainly it's because of our technology age today. Yeah. Now, the title of your book, as I've mentioned, is Thank You for Rejecting Me. How do you believe heartbreak has the capacity to transform our lives? And you've touched on this, but I wanted to ask you directly. Yes, I have been through countless heartbreaks as a dating coach. Really, the only way I could get here was having a lot of experience in dating. And with that, it's also meant a lot of heartbreak. I'm still unmarried. And so because of that, I've experienced a plethora of heartbreaks. Uh, and it used to devastate me in the past to the point of I, I felt like I couldn't move forward, where I ruminated for months on end about why that relationship ended, why I wasn't enough, or why I was too much for that person. I blamed myself. I went into downward spirals of stalking my ex to no end, just hoping and praying maybe we could get back together one day. And those rejections, those heartbreaks crippled me. 
But eventually my mentor said this, and it was just a transformative uh, moment in my life a few years ago. Um, And I write about this in chapter five of my book, Mm -hmm. The Ugly Cry, which is about heartbreak. And she said to me, Kate, do you want to believe that somebody is with you only because you are constantly waving your hands in front of their face, reminding them of how amazing you are? Or do you want to be with somebody whose heart is ignited to pursue you through the good, bad, and the ugly? And I was like, well, yeah, like, I don't want to feel like I'm constantly on performance to be someone's wife. I do want to be with someone who wants to be with me and their heart is ignited to pursue me through the good, bad, and the ugly. Yeah, that's what I wanted. And in that moment, it just made me realize how much I was holding on to past people or even that rejection at that time, which was a heartbreak that was devastating for me with a guy that I thought I was going to marry. I didn't want to be the girl anymore that just waved her hands in front of guys' faces, trying to get them to like me, trying to perform to get them to choose me. I realized, wait, something had to change for me to be able to walk in my worth. The beautiful part about that specific rejection I'm referring to a few years ago, chapter five of my book, was that rejection felt so devastating. I thought I was going to marry this guy. But yet it gave me the space in my life to start reflecting on how much emphasis I put on a man saying yes to me, on a man choosing me. And it allowed me, allowed me a lot of space to process that, Georgine. And in that season of processing, healing, grieving, asking God a lot of hard questions, it was in that space that I started getting this prompting on my heart to talk about rejection and talk about dating in a new way. And it was in that season that I specifically, six months after that breakup, actually started my podcast, Heart of Dating. And I firmly believe today, if that breakup had not happened, I never would have started Heart of Dating. I never would have then become a dating coach. I never would have then written this book that I is so the passion and cry of my heart to get this message into the world. And so what is so beautiful and heartbreak is that those seasons of pain birth about opportunities that can cultivate beautiful new things in our life. And that new, those new things, it's a question mark. We don't know what that new thing will be. We don't know what kind of beautiful thing it'll be, but it will be a beautiful new thing. But you have to be the one to work to cultivate that healing process, to press into the pain, to press into the healing. But within every heartbreak, I believe it's an opportunity to get to know ourselves again, to re-experience God and his heart and his love for us, and to ultimately have space in our lives lives to cultivate something new, cultivate a new passion, cultivate new friendships, something. But that's what I love about heartbreak. And then the last thing I'll say on heartbreak is a beautiful, beautiful element of heartbreak as well is that it's devastating. It hurts. But with but being able to experience the depth of pain will also allow you to experience the height of great, beautiful joy. And what I mean by that is me being able to now experience so many different heartbreaks man, that pain still hurts. It's not that I'm robotic. It's not that the pain doesn't hit me. I feel it. I grieve it. And I don't always look forward to it. Absolutely not. But I I know that as I press through the pain, what it also gives me is so much more of a capacity to have such a joy for life in every small moment, to appreciate every blessing, to appreciate each day and even just the small moments. I, so I love that part of experiencing deep pain um, is that I know that through time, it does allow me to really, really appreciate 
all the small things that really turn into true, beautiful joy. Yeah, deepens your capacity. Once again, the book is titled Thank You for Rejecting Me, Transform Pain into Purpose and Learn to Fight for Yourself. There's so much more in the book we don't have time to cover. So you need to pick the book up. It's published by Baker. Uh, Kate Warman, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Just heads up, tomorrow we'll take a look at the headline news, but we'll also take a look at the lighter side of the news and share the week's Christian outlook. That's coming up tomorrow, this Friday, on The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Americans are increasingly losing their faith in the so-called government and corporate media experts. Well, according to a recent Pew Research survey, only about one quarter of Americans say they can trust the government in Washington to do what is right just about always 2% or most of the time at 22%. Among Republicans and those who lean Republican, that number is just 5%. Well, a separate survey by PR giant Edelman's annual trust barometer, they show trust in traditional media has declined to an all-time low. 56% of Americans agree with the statement that journalists and reporters are purposely trying to mislead people by saying things they know are false or gross exaggerations. 58% think that most news organizations are more concerned with supporting an ideology or political position than with informing the public. And when Edelman uh, re-polled Americans after the election, the figures had deteriorated even further, with 57% of Democrats trusting the media and only 18% of Republicans. Additionally, according to Edelman, trust in social media has hit an all-time low of 27%. Well, faith in society's central institutions, especially in government and the media, is the glue that holds society together. That glue was visibly dissolving a decade ago and has now, for many millions of Americans, disappeared entirely. Well, this is a huge problem because, as we all know, the overwhelming majority of lawmakers at the federal level no longer take places uh, in Congress as the Constitution's framers intended. Instead, the vast majority of the rulemaking governing Americans' day-to-day lives now takes place behind closed doors, deep in the bowels of the administrative state's sprawling bureaucracy. These are the very people that failed us so spectacularly over the past 15 months of the COVID pandemic. Well, Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, is Exhibit A for failure to of government experts, rather. Last June, in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services podcast, Learning Curve, Dr. Fauci accused a large swath of Americans of having an anti-science bias. One of the problems we face in the United States is that, unfortunately, there is a combination of an anti-science bias that people are for reasons that sometimes are, you know, inconceivable and not understandable. They just don't believe science and they don't believe authority, Fauci said. Would that it were so simple. Uh, would that the science we have been given is always reliable uh, and that uh, competing voices who are uh, scientists, who are reliable uh, and who are respected would be heard as well, that there would be open debate. But I digress. So when they see someone, Dr. Fauci went on to say, when they see someone up in the White House, which has an air of authority to it, who's talking about science, that there are some people who just don't believe that. And that's unfortunate because, you know, science is truth. Fauci said that's really a problem. Well, according to Timothy Dougherty, a Ph.D. consultant on corporate leadership, the real problem is that conservatives, whom he said are inclined by nature to trust authority and institutions, have lost faith in our institutions. Conservatives are 
uh, predisposed to trust authority and trust the Constitution, the Bible, the rule of law, police, and so forth, explained Doherty. So this tells me there is something else going on. People are beginning to see that authority is being abused. It's being politicized. It's being used to further a political agenda. When you think about the two major outcomes of COVID, first, it crashed the Trump economy, and second, it has set the stage for mass mail-in voting, a very controversial means of voting, end quote. Well, you don't need an expert to tell you that these two things have a huge impact on the outcome of the 2020 presidential election and contributed greatly to the loss of faith in the so-called experts. In 2020, independent reporting uh, by Project Veritas, they exposed both corporate media corruption and voting fraud. Mario uh, Balaban, a media relations manager at Project Veritas, said it's a good thing that more Americans are skeptical of the experts because they are so often wrong. The so-called experts in mainstream media are the least trustworthy so- sources, in my opinion, Balaban says. Uh, don't take what uh, these mainstream reporters or their government officials say blindly without doing some research on your own. Always try to do some more digging. Uh, he added, and uh, use your common sense. You can't tell when you know um, they're trying, uh, you can tell rather when they're trying to push a narrative as opposed to the truth. Well, Balaban says Project Veritas hopes that as more Americans seek truth from independent sources, it will lead to change. It comes down to the public's will to make the change they want to see. I think there's a reliance, a collective reliance on the laziness of the American people that we're not going to challenge what we're hearing. We're not going to do our own research. We're not going to listen to other reliable voices. And there have been some very impressive, very reliable voices uh, contradicting or at least questioning some of uh, the narrative that we've been hearing from so-called experts that I think uh, we are uh, right to uh, to question and pursue and draw conclusions based on what we can affirm to be the case. So there you have it. Well, a Virginia mom who endured Mao Zedong's cultural revolution before immigrating to the United States ripped a Virginia school board at a public meeting on Tuesday over its stubborn support of the controversial critical race theory. I've been very alarmed by what's going on in our schools, G. Van Fleet told the Loudoun County School Board members. You are now teaching, training our kids to be social justice warriors and to loathe our country and our history. She likened uh, CRT, critical race theory, which critics deride as a form of neo-racism, to China's cultural revolution, a Mao-led purge that left between 500,000 and 20 million people dead from 1966 to 1976. The estimates vary um, greatly, and many details have been shrouded in secrecy for decades. Van Fleet, however, whose son graduated from the Loudoun School District in 2015, shared some of her experience growing up in China's Sichuan province um, on Wednesday evening. The Cultural Revolution began when she was six years old, she said, and immediately pitted students and teachers against one another by hanging big posters in hallways and the cafeteria where students could write criticism against anyone deemed ideologically impure. Hmm. One of the teachers was considered bourgeois because she liked to wear pretty clothes, Van Fleet said. So the students attacked her and spit on her. She was covered with spit. The pretty soon became violence. Now, this, of course, could never happen here. To me and to a lot of Chinese, it is heartbreaking that we escaped communism and now we experience communism here. Communist squads would raid homes and destroy any relics of China's past. Uh, history, government, religion, culture, she said. And again, she's reflecting on what's happening here. Everything that was considered old, feudalist, a vase, Buddhas, everything 
um, was taken down and smashed, she said. There were thought crimes, too. We were asked to report if we heard anything about someone saying anything showing that there's a lack of complete loyalty to Mao. She went on to say there were people reporting their parents and their parents ended up in jail. At 26 years old, she said, she finally made it out traveling to the United States where she immediately found freedom she had never been able to enjoy before. I felt like it was such a free country. In the, in the current political and cultural climate, however, in the U.S., she said she felt some of that freedom is eroding. I can't really just say what I mean, even though the other side can say whatever, she's, whatever she said. To me and a lot of uh, Chinese, it is heartbreaking that we escaped communism and now we experience it, uh, experiencing it here again. Very sobering words from someone who's been there. Well, we are out of time. Tomorrow, we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news and share the Christian outlook. I want to thank James Blind for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.